everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. My partner of endless years, forever and ever. Um, forever and ever? Forever and ever. Even as I age right before your eyes? I mean, we were just talking about Botox, so. I mean, it's drafty in here. Do you see all the billowing curtains? You know what? I can't believe how much Patreon money we spent on curtains. Billowing curtains. They billow. Yeah. Constantly. Well, because it's the curtains and it's the wind machines. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. So that's why we had to buy both. Oh. Yeah. It seems like it would be fun to be forever young, to live immortal, to have all this power. But as these movies that we've paired for today illustrate that it's not all fun and games. Yeah, these are two films that really deal and wrestle with a lot of notions around long-term relationships Mm -hmm. and sometimes they can be really sexy and they're known for being very sexy and erotic and very like romantically charged but there's a lot of downtime in these films Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of emphasis on aesthetics which um, a lot of people use to dismiss these films but I think it's really important that we talk about the notion of aesthetics and how it informs a visual style that um, aligns with vampiric folklore. Yeah vampiric folklore is erotic it is gothic it has this lineage and then here's these two modern-ish examples that aren't quite horror movies either Um, these are kind of horror adjacent and that they do deal with vampires and murder and blood and stuff like this but the the attention and the focus is mostly on these relationships on the sentimentality on the emotions and i think it was a really inspired pairing by you oh it was by you what yeah stop it was you see this is how long-term relationships last you're always (laughs) giving the other person credit you are hearing me turn to dust my friends you are listening to it happen So The Hunger. The Hunger. What was your journey to this movie? Um, My journey to this movie now rewatching it was that I think I saw it too young, but not in a way that it scared me, just in a way that I didn't understand it. And so now watching it, I'm like, oh, it's fucking Bauhaus. (laughs) Like, all I want to do is watch like the first six minutes of this movie over and over again. The first six minutes of this movie are incredible. It's like Gaspar Noé's... What's that movie you made? Climax? Yeah. Like the first six, you just want to watch it again and again. I had a very similar situation, the opening sequence with Bauhaus credited as disco group, (gasps) hilariously, is incredible. And then it goes in a direction, and I think I knew I had seen it before, and I think my error was... You know, it was the 90s. It was probably a sleepover that we were like, ooh, sexy vampires. This is going to be kind of like The Lost Boys or Interview with the Vampire or something. And then you put it on and it's just not a party vibe. It is not an exciting movie. It's, I actually feel like it's flawed in many ways. It kind of really drags, but uh, it's interesting and obviously very uh, influential. And you know what this film reminded me of so much when I was watching it um, was because the film is directed by Tony Scott. So I couldn't help but think about around the same time in the early 80s, his brother Ridley is fucking around with Blade Runner, another kind of influential, high concept, frankly, mess of a film Mm -hmm. that's dealing in neo-noir, in modernism, in futurism, Mm -hmm. in um, people trying to connect and desperately wanting to, but often being unable and afraid to. 
Yeah, another cult classic. Um, I had my total noob move of Tony Scott. <laughs> is that Ridley's brother? Oh, dear. Yes, it is. It is. Honey. And uh, I Googled. Oh, yeah. And I saw that uh, he met a tragic end after a battle with cancer, which yep. I think, I mean, you know, he didn't write The Hunger. He went on to do stuff like Top Gun, True Romance. Like, I think it would be foolish to kind of like read anything autobiographical in, you know, these these vampires in aging. But it does tackle themes that are tragic. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to touch on the Tony and Ridley of it all, um, you know, Ridley has definitely gone down this kind of auteur-ish path. Mm -hmm. You know, he is known as the creative lead in almost every film he does. I think, you know, when you start off with Alien, you kind of can't avoid that Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways. And then when Tony comes on the scene and he makes The Hunger and then he goes to Top Gun and then he's doing like way bigger action blockbuster films, like they're not prestige films, they are popcorn films. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, the vast majority of his films are incredibly well made. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you have to stack them up mm-hmm. outside of Alien, I'm watching Tony Scott. Yeah. But, you know, as a creative, and I'm sure you can relate, uh, sometimes you wonder if you're telling stories, mm. you know, and if you're making that, uh, I don't know, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't armchair analyze <laughs> the poor guy, but uh, may he rest in peace. Thank you for the hunger. And with that, shall we get to it? Let's get into 1983's The Hunger. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. After 200 years as a vampire, John begins to rapidly age. His partner Miriam, who turned him, remains as youthful as ever. They seek the help of Dr. Sarah Roberts, who only understands how dire John's situation is as it becomes too late. Hoping to save himself, John feeds on Alice, a 14-year-old neighbor who has befriended the couple. 
John continues to age and eventually collapses. Miriam places him in a coffin-like box and puts him in the attic surrounded by other similar boxes of her other barely alive lovers. Miriam begins a passionate affair with Sarah and starts to turn her into her next partner. Sarah learns that the vampiric affliction is actually a blood-based disease. After Miriam entices Sarah to feed on and kill her boyfriend, Tom, Sarah realizes what her life will become and kills herself. This awakens the mummified corpses of Miriam's other lovers who cause her to rapidly age as they chase her off a balcony. The final scene shows Sarah in London with a new companion and Miriam in her own coffin crying out Sarah's name. Great synopsis. Thank you. May we all leave our lovers in a coffin-like box crying out our names. Okay. Great. I was fascinated by your synopsis because watch the movie watched the movie again, paid attention, did my research. I was questioning whether John killed Alice out of thirst or jealousy. I've seen both takes. Uh-huh. I go with the feeding one. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, that was my initial thing. And then when I was reading a couple articles about it, people were like, it was jealousy. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's tricky because either explanation makes sense. The only thing is, like, the way these two vampires feed is so erotic that mm-hmm. maybe they just didn't want to apply that to a child. Maybe that would have been weird. Yeah, and there's also, I think you can infer that Miriam, before she meets Sarah, is trying to make Alice her next partner or kind of grooming her for that. Like, there are, like, really ambiguous layers of ick in this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. And it really is, like, John and Miriam are, like, the you know, demonic version of the like, hey, we saw you across the bar kind of vibes. Totally. And I think this film really does play with your expectations in a lot of different ways. I remember wondering, like, is Alice their familiar or is she going to be kind of their child to give them this like nuclear family unit? And then, you know, it kind of went a different way. And then surely Alice's note in the statue is going to come back to do something. And no, there are so many ambiguities of this film. I think even the vampire mythos Mm. is um, different from traditional vampire mythos. The film doesn't take pains to explain what these vampires are like, what they're about. We're just kind of thrown right into the middle of it. There's some flashbacks. There's a lot of billowy curtains and, you know, we're left to fill in the blanks. Yeah. And I, I, it's very much a film about, as we're saying, mood and visual style than it is about a narrative and a driving plot and character development. It's all about the aesthetics overtaking the content. And I, usually this really bugs me, but with this film, I was actually more cool with it than I thought. Mm -hmm. One of the things that felt really vital for me was that this takes the early 80s and makes it cool and very sexy, but also very much of its time. It's not mocking it. It's not mocking a trend. It's not like a later Nightmare on Elm Street franchise entry where it's like high gloss and we're going to make fun of the bimbo. It's like, let's get into the goth scene. Let's get into the dark wave scene. Let's really explore that. And Enjoy it and revel in it if let's develop how the -the over-the-top aesthetic is part of this way of living, like this kind of operatic nature of it all. Yeah, this opulence, this high-maintenance glamour, this look that, you know, anyone who dresses that way knows that it's a lot of labor and money to uphold these very sculpted updos and stuff. And I think another part of The Hunger's Legacy is its depiction, those first six minutes like we were talking about, when we talk about films that are goth and films that 
kind of speak to the modern gothic subculture. You know, you talk about uh, Lost Highway, you talk about The Crow, you talk about The Hunger. Even though it's such a brief moment in this film, I think it's really important to set it off because this is a time where, you know, gothic weirdos are able to walk freely and becoming a little bit more commonplace. And so it was a time where vampires could kind of walk around freely that done up and not feel like Halloween. And I think it's also important to remember when watching a film in 2023 that was released in 1983 that, um, you know, back in the 80s, we didn't all have smartphones. We didn't have like a Pinterest app. We couldn't just look up an aesthetic on our phone. So the idea that this was going from a very underground scene to a studio film, even though it didn't do really well at the time, it developed a cult following, I think in large part because it gave people access to a really dark subculture that Mm -hmm. people were curious about and interested in. And it gave them a kind of map for how to find it, how to follow it, the kind of music, the kind of style, um, how to create that within your own world if you want to. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I do just want to land one last point as we talk about the aesthetics of this film, because it is, I've seen it lobbed at this film as both a criticism, but also something that people really like and love about it. And in thinking about this story as a story about vampires, you know, I couldn't help but think that we view vampires as adaptable. They are chameleonic. They need to change their look, their attitude to at least kind of blend in or use their powers, whatever mythology you're working in. They've got to somehow adapt or they've got to somehow adopt or reject the aesthetics of the time. I like this version where they're actually having to lean in really hard to the trends. They got to go to the club. Mm -hmm. They got to go pick up the new wave kids. Mm -hmm. They got to do all of that. They can't just sit in their salon the whole time and like play classical music with a 14 year old. And it's also part of the way they hunt. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a really interesting way into how people enter scenes. You know, there is a very organic thing and people can be curious and want to be part of it. And then there are ways that people infiltrate it to Mm -hmm. get access to certain people. Yeah, There are ideas that, you know, certain communities, certain subcultures will have certain modes of operating. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of crack that code, then you can get these two people back to your apartment. You can flirt with them. You can almost fuck them and then you can kill them. Mm -hmm. Like there is a method there that is being replicated. Mm -hmm. It does kind of speak to to you know probably pervasive anxieties at the time that this underworld is dangerous that these people are um promiscuous and contaminated and so on and so on and so forth but it's it's just one of the three kind of temporal spheres that this film occupies with one being modern bustling new york the other being their townhouse yeah which is out of time completely yeah and then of course there's this goth club and I almost wish they went back to it. I know. You know what? You could have just played the first six minutes of the film over and over again. Yeah. I would have been real happy. Just as a little wake up every so often. Just Just in the midst of the billowing curtains. More Miriam hunting. Yes. But as you were just saying, Andrea, I think it's hard to watch almost any film from the 80s that deals with sex and death and not acknowledge the shadow that AIDS and HIV casts 
on films such as this. Uh, there has been a lot of writing because in many ways, like this wasn't always intended to be like an AIDS allegory, but of course people like ourselves will read into things like this. Um, you know, and you've got, you know, John who is rapidly aging, rapidly decaying, and that's kind of the first, you know, third of the film. And it's hard not to see an allusion to one partner um, having the disease and rapidly succumbing to it. Yeah, just watching your loved ones crumbling to dust and another one for the attic and the tragedy in that. And, you know, say what you will about Miriam, and we're going to say a lot about Miriam. She weeps. Yeah. She feels it. She feels it. And I felt some pathos for her at some moments in this movie. Yeah. It's complicated. It's complicated. But a a couple key dates that align with the story of The Hunger. So the novel comes out in 1981. 1981 is when the first cases of AIDS are reported in the U.S. Again, this is a time where it's just mainstream media. It's a monoculture. You are experiencing everything through um, a mainstream prescribed news source or through small community um, activism. So the uh, work around AIDS did take a lot of community grassroots activism to get off the ground. So you see that uh, kind of aligned with the release of the novel. Mm-hmm. And then flash forward a couple of years to 1983, and that's when you've got the first uh, AIDS outpatient clinic being opened, um, a lot more community organizing, a lot more advocacy that is starting to happen. Then I also read that in 1983, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has a meeting to figure out how to protect the nation's blood supply Mm. because they were understood that it was a blood-based disease, as vampirism is in this movie, and they were more concerned about the blood for the nation than it was about, okay, like what's actually happening and how do we protect communities and how do we we identify to make a a real impact and Mm -hmm. save more lives? Yeah. How do we contain it? And, you know, and then that was, that was very problematic at the time because it was very, you know, certain people were dirty and certain people couldn't give blood. And that was, that continued forward, like well into, well into our age. I remember in my twenties, I wasn't able to give blood if I'd gotten a tattoo recently, whether or not the tattoo was at a safe, clean, reputable place. It was just, it wasn't worth the risk, according to the CDC. And from what I understand, I didn't read uh, Whitley Strieber's novel, but, um, you know, the practical considerations of vampirism, the medicalized considerations of vampirism, uh, the character of Sarah being a gerontologist who is doing scientific experimentation on aging. From what I understand, the novel was a a little bit more concerned Mm -hmm. with with that aspect, whereas in the film, it was a bit more of a footnote. Um, But yeah, the idea of weaponized blood, toxic in both directions, apparently, with this, uh, with this permutation of the vampire. And because it starts with the indiscriminate seduction and killing of that couple. Mm -hmm. So again, the film kind of gets into, oh, it's every hundred, few hundred years that these lovers die Mm -hmm. of Miriam's. But Miriam is kind of the, like, one of the originals. Like, she has been around since ancient Egypt. Yeah. She is an OG queen of the damned, and so it doesn't afflict her. And yet, when it comes to Miriam's death, I'm, I'm still a bit of a question mark. Why a fall down the stairs. I don't know if an injury, but then no, when it happens to John, it starts with lack of sleep and sleep is this I, thing. I have a thing about Miriam's death, but I think it's going to come up when we talk about another character. Okay. All right. But yeah, no, just all that to say, like there is this a looming shadow. And I think even if it's not the filmmaker's intent, 
moment, as we always say, to talk about AIDS and subcultures and how, you know, marginalized communities were being affected or being villainized. Um, that's what a lot of these films tend to do. They're always speaking to the collective unconscious and that's the anxieties right. that we are forever dealing with and worrying about. And then we, you know, have podcasts and books and things like that. And we look back and we get to see like, oh, there is more going on in our collective ether than we would maybe want to believe. That's right. And even if it didn't necessarily inform its creation, I think it does inform its reception. I think whenever we talk about looking back on the 80s, you know, we're talking about consumerism and the me generation. And I think, you know, all of that hedonism and consumerism probably also gave rise to people thinking more about their own mortality Mm -hmm. Or how do I live long enough to enjoy all this retirement fund I've been socking away, perhaps? I've heard of a retirement fund. It's it's an ancient practice. Oh, right, right, right. Like the the pharaohs had. I mean, the specter of death is everywhere in this movie. Maybe it's just me, but the smoking. Like, there's a lot of 80s movies that feature a lot of smoking, but I always find it funny to see a doctor smoke. Yes, and like in the lab. All the time, and everywhere. Curtains. That is just a fire hazard. <laughs> I know you're on the veil thing, and sure, but god damn, those, those curtains were not a natural material. Like, they couldn't have been. All right. So I think it bears mention, rewatching this film, I was like, who is the main character again? Oh, like, that's it a great question. It is so hard to not get so absorbed by the presence of David Bowie. Yeah. And, you know, like, he's a superstar. Obviously, everyone in this film, the the, the big three, they're stunning. They just eat up the screen and make you flood your basement, obviously. And I found myself so wrapped up in him and what was happening to him. And why is he being so mean and angsty to Miriam? Why is he so impatient and, and grabby with the arm and stuff? And then... Miriam emerges as the big bad, the queen bitch. And I spent a lot of the runtime trying to decide if I liked her, trying to decide if she was being a monster in a sympathetic way or in a not sympathetic way or in an emergent boss lady, bad bitch, 80s kind of way. And I haven't fully landed on it, but I do just want to open up the conversation to the idea of the lady vampire. You have a thick Oh, face. wow. What? Yeah. What's no, up? Miriam Blaylock original girl boss you know she's kind of a queen like there is there is something about her that i can't help but aspire to oh god yeah and like i truly find when you understand what's happening to john like when he collapses and she's like fucking puts him in the coffin and they're in the attic and like all of these other kind of like fucking boxes are up there yeah like it is a brilliant scene because it is both terrifying and heartbreaking because she clearly has an affinity as she says Lolia this is John comfort him all of you all my loves be kind to him tonight it's quite moving because she's clearly out for like she wants companionship miriam wants companionship but like she can't just forget someone no that's right that's right and how often do you get to see uh, a romantic 
situation like this where the woman is 100% in control. Yeah. A woman who is like, uh, I'm done with you, on to the next. Like, tragically or not, I will mourn you, but I gotta live my life. Yeah, and it's like, it's not like she's done, like, I don't think she does anything. It's just this kind of sad thing, but it's fucked up that she doesn't tell them. Yes, And when she says it to Sarah, like, you're going to live forever and never age like another minute. And I'm like, okay, bitch. Yeah, no, she's she's dishonest. And I I think part of me is like, if if I'm going to spend a couple of centuries with a person, I would maybe vet them a little more carefully than just going to their book launch party and being like, whoa, you're incredibly super hot and I can see your nipples through your shirt. You got a little sherry on there. I mean, come on. You've been to my book launch parties. I have. Can't believe I didn't get a vampire lover out of one of them. Maybe a couple of centuries is just such a drop in the bucket to her that it's... I think so. I think that's, you know, you get that sense of this is just one chapter of her life. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at uh, seeing all those coffins piled up in the attic, it's mm-hmm, like, oh, mm-hmm. that's the book of Miriam's life. That's right. And you know, we tend to think of Count Dracula as the big granddaddy vampire, but, and I know we've mentioned this before on this podcast, Sheridan Le Fanu's novel Carmilla came out in 1872, 25 years before Dracula. And not only was Carmilla a bad bitch lady vampire, she was also a lesbian vampire. Fuck yeah, she was. Fuck yeah, she was. Uh, Countess Bathory and her young female victims were said to influence the vampire subgenre. Uh, the 1960s and 70s and the boom of exploitation lesbian vampire movies. The ladies have a legacy within vampire lore that translates directly into Miriam. And I found a really great academic article, and we'll link it in the show notes because I found a cheeky PDF of it. Um, uh, And it's called Not All Fangs Are Phallic. Female Film Vampires by James Craig Holt. And it's a really interesting article. title, James. I know, right? Um, and, uh, and it actually covers a, a lot of stuff that Andrea was just touching on. But Holt references um, another critic, Pam Keasley. Keasley writes a lot about, which uh, Holt cites, as you would do in academia, um, about how a lot of this kind of female vampire energy, your Carmillas, your Elizabeth Bathory's, your all of that, um, really stems from pre-Christian goddesses. And the parts of them, the specific parts of these goddesses or deities that were sexual, and deceitful or monstrous and angry and post-Christian. And then, you know, as Christianity rose, they took those traits out of a larger story of these, you know, women goddesses and made them monstrous traits Mm. and then built up this idea of women with power are sexually deviant. They are monstrous and they will um, seduce and destroy you. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And again, I think we should also say that like every time Elizabeth Bathory comes up, I mean, she's kind of this iconic historical figure, but like more and more every time I read something about her, it's like, that was all bullshit. Yeah. And they were just trying to get back at her, like the, you know, servant girls were trying to fuck with her or something. But 
It's a cool story, but I just again, choose to believe that she's this mad queen Cersei Lannister. Yeah, and I think like <laughs> we can now say like I love the idea of like bad bitch Count Elizabeth Bathory, but you know, we are changing the narrative where for so long it was like look how vain and look how awful and monstrous she was. Well, I think that's a great springboard to talk about the lesbianism of these lesbian vampire narratives. Is that is it a titillating taboo that could only be explored in a fantasy context outside of realism? Is it an easy way to sell an exploitation movie? Yes, but it's still so important in its visibility and you can't discount that, especially for a movie like The Hunger. Yeah, and like what we were saying about like the kind of, you know, subculture, the dark wave of it all, it also gives people an entry point into queerness. That's right. If they haven't been privy to it before. Uh-huh. I wouldn't say it's a definitive text on that, but it no, is part of an entry point. It, it's, it is problematic in that, you know, um, we've got Sarah kind of, she experiments in this world and she's punished for it yeah. immediately. It's something we see in film again and again, but just even the fact that it exists, the fact that uh, it, it doesn't appear that they used um, body doubles. It looked mm-hmm. like a sexual scene. And I saw some spicy quotes from Susan Sarandon being like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> Did not have any trouble acting there. Yeah. So I don't know if you found this, Andrea, but in talking about Miriam's queerness, I saw people lauding it as Mm -hmm. like, this is clearly a part of who she is and it's not part of her monstrousness. Mm -hmm. And then I saw takes that were like, it is part of her monstrousness. She uses it to procure herself another partner. Mm -hmm. I think this is where like the ambiguity, the aesthetic overriding the narrative makes it kind of you're going to fall on whichever side you fall on and Mm -hmm. you know not for better or for worse you're just going to see different parts and when you have a film that kind of has this much open space in it Mm -hmm. um you're gonna you know project your own ideas onto it and i mean it's it's tricky because on one hand Miriam's sexuality is part of a cycle of violence that she propagates. And on the other hand, as we were just saying, she seems to genuinely care and love and mourn her partners. That's right. And and I think we're going to talk a little more about familiars and about how vampires often need uh, an outside person to live in the world, just to have that kind of like one one foot or paw or claw or fang out there. And she could do that, but she chooses to have a companion in this manner. She chooses to have a romantic sexual companion who is also a quasi-vampire, maybe because they just last a little bit longer than the normal human being. But I think she does crave that intimacy. Yeah. I don't get the sense that she's opportunistic in that way. And like, I feel like John loved her and she loved him and they had something between each other. I mean, you can't sit around playing like big classical instruments and powdered wigs and not be like, fuck yeah. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. I also think that especially as we were talking about, you know, the kind of specter of AIDS and the shadow it casts over this film, especially when we look back upon it, um, one of the things that struck me while watching it was that it's kind of like a prestige take on queerness. Mm-hmm. Like, as you were saying, like, it's beautifully shot, you know, like, it's well lit. Everyone looks great. Um It's very sexy and it's a very beautiful film and the queerness and especially the love scene between Sarah and Miriam, it's not something that the film is ashamed of or Mm -hmm. trying to hide Mm -hmm. or just trying to insinuate. It's like, 
hey, we all know what we came here for. Mm-hmm. And again, I think there is kind of the, you know, titillation part of it. You can look at it and see it as male gaze, or you can see it as, I bet a lot of people had a lot of awakenings to that scene. I agree. And I think that that is like so valid and it is so valuable. And, you know, I think sometimes problematic depictions of early queerness in cinema, it's problematic and that's why it got made and we'll take what we can get. God damn yeah. it. Yeah. And it's like this, you know, equating, um, you know, kind of queerness with a certain aesthetic and a certain style and elevating that aesthetic and style, I I think is, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I I think there is something really beautiful in getting to express it really um, in a kind of over the top cinematic way. I, I kind of think it's pretty cool. I think so, too. A mature woman, an elegant woman, an affluent woman, you know? And I also say, like, maybe this is just me. And maybe this is me reaching a little too far. But I also couldn't help but feel like John and Sarah bear a passing resemblance to each other. Oh. Okay. You know, uh, beyond like the short hair, they've kind of got like the high cheekbones, really intense eyes. Um, There is something about them that feels like they're kind of coded as uh, like almost symbiotic to each other. I mean, the androgyny. I I think I read something about Sarah's wardrobe and the things that she wears, the fact that she's a scientist and back in the 80s, that's a boy's job. Are you fucking kidding me? And like, obviously, you don't cast David Bowie in something without knowing that he brings a sense of uh, ambiguous sexuality, gender bending sexuality. He is a creature outside of gender. I don't know. That didn't occur to me, but uh, I felt a fluidity with both of those characters, whereas Miriam has a very old worldly grand dame elegance. Yeah. And it just felt like it was kind of almost like because... Miriam seemed to imprint on Sarah, like Uh at that book signing right away. Like there is a fluidity of the transition between John and Sarah. Uh Like there was something almost very supernatural about it, but that felt very organic. Mm-hmm. I, I remember being kind of frustrated by the dynamics. I felt like, like they both kind of came to Sarah on their own. Yes. You know, John is looking, well, they both came to her as potentially the solution or the cure to what's happening to John, but John goes further with it. He gets mad at her. So like, maybe that was kind of almost an early sense of rivalry. And yeah. then, and then going back to Alice, like, like I said, I wasn't sure if that was a murder out of rivalry and jealousy, or if that was, I need to feed because I'm dying. One of the many ambiguities of this film. And I think it's probably a little bit of all of that. Um, Can we talk about Sarah? Yes, please. The more I think about Sarah, the more I'm like, that is kind of a radical journey that she is on throughout this film. As you just mentioned, uh, she's a woman in what is usually a deeply male field. Um, you know, just having a woman in a scientific field who is uh, capable, who is driving narrative, who is not just kind of helpless throughout the whole thing is, you know, was really cool to see. And she seems to kind of flourish as she rejects conventions as she begins the relationship with Miriam. I thought the scene where her and Tom go on that date and uh, they're talking about the steak. You ordered it rare. I know. So what's the problem? Nothing. And you sent back the clams. I'm just not very hungry. Well, then why order it if you're not hungry? Why order the steak at all? I thought I wanted it. Like, she's just pushing back. Yeah. 
She doesn't take any shit from it. She cheated on him that day. Yeah. And he's like, well, you shouldn't have ordered the steak. I thought I wanted it. Shut up. Yeah. I'm going to light another cigarette. How about that? (laughs) Which I'm sure at the time it was like, oh, well, this is bad for her. Like she's transforming into a creature. She's transforming into something bad. But me looking back on it. Because he's like Tom is, you know, the brief moments we get of him in the film, he's very dismissive of her. Mm -hmm. He's very, it feels like that kind of gross alpha male, you know, needing to swing his dick around. Well, we've also both dated shitty Toms. Oh my God, we have something we share so it's possible that we were like yeah fuck you tom fuck you tom sandoval (laughs) i forgot about him how do i think about him every day i know you do i think about vanderpump rules multiple times a day (laughs) um so yeah i just there was something that like it you see a light turn on in her and she's kind of just she stops accepting all of these social norms and niceties or cruelties that as a woman you're often expected to just fucking take yes and even when she's in the throes of her suffering even when she's getting to know this hunger this thirst and she's like shaking and trembling you know she comes to confront Miriam. she's she's always very um concerned with her own agency and i'm gonna take control of this situation and in the end she does in a manner that would have i think been more powerful had it been the sacrifice that i think it was supposed to be Yes. So I want to touch on this moment of Sarah seemingly killing herself. And I really love the way this scene is shot because just to use this fucking term, when we're talking about the hunger, it is ambiguous what is happening Mm -hmm. for a few seconds. You see like a hand grab the um, like Egyptian uh, necklace that is always around uh, Miriam's neck and you, you cut something. You don't know what is Sarah killing Miriam, but it's Sarah killing herself using Miriam's tool. Right. Choosing not to participate in this cycle, especially as Miriam begins to pitch it to her that you're going to forget these people. You're Mm going to forget your life. Yeah. Everything you knew, it won't be real anymore. And you're just going to be with me. And that's, I really felt when the film took a very dark turn. We see Sarah like really starting to feel herself in the scenes leading up to it. And then it's like, you're actually not going to get any of this. That's right. You are in my life. You are in my lane. And everything that matters to you is not going to matter to you very soon. And Sarah makes an incredibly difficult choice. You know, I refuse to acknowledge that last, the last scenes in The Hunger. And you know what? So does Susan Sarandon. Yeah. And I agree with it because I think the way, like, the mummified corpses come back, if I need to find a narrative strand to make that make sense, if I need to thread that narrative needle, mm. it is that Sarah ended the cycle of Miriam's control. She rejected it, and that awoke the other kind of, like, hey, fuck you, lady, in the mummified corpses of her lovers. Yeah, it also kind of like harkens back to like, I don't even know if it's classic vampirism or if it's modern vampirism, where if you kill the head vampire, all others will be released. That kind of made sense. And it wouldn't wouldn't track that Sarah had any knowledge that Miriam consuming any of her blood. Like there's too much ambiguity as to the nature of this vampirism for that to have been deliberate. Um, But yeah, she's on record as saying I wasn't keen on that ending. It was to open it up to possible sequels, which thank God never happened. Yeah. Is there a TV show though? There was a TV show, but it really had nothing to do with the film or the book. Okay. Um, So it's kind of like an outlier that just used the cult IP of the hunger. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like Sarah's story ending at her making a decision to go out on her top. 
Yes. And not on someone else's. Yeah. And especially because she has that knowledge of what happened to John. She's like kind of put it together. Yeah. She knows things and she knows things because she fought to be in the position of being a scientist. She's like fucking fought her way through a shitty Tom. And you know what? She's not going to be someone else's doormat. No. She said no. She said, said no. And no. that's fucking cool and I sexy. I see your gift of eternal life and I say no. And, you know, even just Miriam with, um, I'm not your mom. Yeah. I might create you, but uh, you're on your own now. I think this film is frustrating sometimes because we want answers to all of this because we care about these people. Um, but I think that's that's frustrating by design. I feel like, you know, the intro just lures us in, just like how the Blaylocks lure their prey. Yeah, I want to be a sexy vampire. This seems fun. And then the rest of the movie, it feels like we're just peeking through a keyhole uh, through at a what's happening curtain. and we want to throw that door open and we don't get to well and then we see like again that first six minutes is the alluring part yeah. of being the sexy vampire and then the next 90 ish minutes are like oh actually it's not that great mm-hmm. you know what else this movie would have been great with pairing mm. let the right one in i know but we already did that we already did that but like, what a similar sin, and and I feel like it's it's equally effective. You know, um, if you guys have seen uh, "Let the Right One In," if you've heard our episode, if you've been listening to us for a while, it's a similar scenario, but with the actually heartbreakingly romantic bit of the companion choosing the servitude yeah. to the vampire. But um, but yeah, I think this just it's eighties as fuck. It's empowering as fuck if you read it that way. And listen, I saw Depeche Mode last weekend. Mm-hmm. And let me say, I'm really on the dark wave train. Yeah. yeah. I'm wearing your dark lipstick today. I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a gothy lipstick. God, Who am I? It's not just a phase. I'm rubbing off on you. You really are. After, you know, 13 years of friendship, <laughs> it's finally happening. Just had to get your Tom out of the way. Yeah. I mean, he got out of the way a long time ago. He got himself out of the way. <laughs> oh, my God. But speaking of lovers who don't get out of our way... Okay, interesting. Do you like that? Do you like me? Do you look good about it? All right. Let's let's go with it. Okay, let's do it. Let's go over to, um, let's um, hop over from uh, New York to Michigan and talk about Only Lovers Left Alive, written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. Well, let's hope he's just romantic. You being so reclusive and everything is probably only going to make people more interested in your music. Yeah. What a drag. Shouldn't she be sleeping in a coffin somewhere? I'm really, really hungry. Could you smell it all the way from LA? We're gonna have so much fun together. We gotta go, right now. Coming. Is that the really good stuff? Precisely. Typo. Thank God, it is great in your soul. 
love them, if I may say so. I have what you need. Not what I need. Adam and Eve are vampires who have been married for centuries, even though they currently reside on opposite ends of the globe. Adam, a reclusive musician, lives in Detroit, while Eve lives in Tangier, where she spends time with her close friend and fellow immortal Christopher Marlowe. Adam has grown despondent to the point of suicidal, and so Eve hops on a night flight to join him in America, and they discuss the meaning of life as vampires. Then Eve's younger sister Ava shows up, and her bratty, devil-may-care attitude threatens to ruin Adam's carefully planned existence, particularly when she feeds on his familiar Ian. Adam and Eve flee Detroit and return to Tangier, where they discover that Marlowe is dying. Starving and desperate, they decide to attack and turn a pair of young lovers and continue their immortal existence. Fuck yeah. So, the first time you saw this movie, go. Oh boy. Um, uh, Yeah, I actually got to see it uh, with a really good friend of mine, and um, it was like, we had like a couple weeks before just seen Under the Skin together, Mm. which is like, oh, that is a heavy-ass film. Mm -hmm. Love it. Heavy-ass film. Um, And so Only Lovers Left Alive felt like a real treat. Mm -hmm. It felt like romantic. It felt sexy. It was funny. It was self-referential. It was talking about high art, about low art. It was doing a lot of different things, and it was much easier to uh, watch and digest and think about. And I was so... um, no, I guess shocked a little bit that you have recently come to this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This was a blind... Oh, no, I'm not going to say a blind spot because I'd heard about it, obviously. I'd heard it was amazing. Like, the praise for this film yeah. was unanimous. Yeah, it was... I, I, I just missed it, and it stayed on my list, and it was on my list, and then it was struck off my list because I was working at Room Org, and we were hosting a screening of... The Dead Don't Die, yeah, which was Jim Jarmusch's new zombie movie. And everybody was so excited because this is his big return to the genre after Only Lovers Left Alive. And it so happened that that screening in particular was like a big PR faff. Like this agency showed up and they covered us with swag and prizes and we decorated everything. And the staff at the Royal were all blood spattered and like... Everything was gung-ho for this movie to blow our fucking minds. And I really, really hated it. I don't know one single person who liked Dead Don't Die. Not only, like, just did it not... It didn't tickle my fancy. It didn't transport me. It didn't scare me or make me laugh or make me think. It actively irritated me because, to me, it smacked of a filmmaker who has a whole lot of A-lister friends Mm -hmm. from the good movies that he made, and he just put them in front of a camera without a script and told them to just, you know what, Bill Murray, just be Bill Murray for two hours. The only thing positive I hear people say about that movie is, well, I love Bill Murray. I could watch him take a shit for two hours, and I'd enjoy that very Mm -hmm. much. I would not. No. Um, It smacks of Hollywood bleh, and it really put piss in my pants about Jim Jarmusch. And prior to that, I had seen Dead Man. 
man. Yeah, and Jim Jarmusch, we should just say, is like a very important American filmmaker who was hugely influential in the indie scene, especially in the 80s and especially in and around New York. Yes, I don't like him. I'm not a fan of his films, generally. I'm not a fan of his films, but I'm also not a fan of him as a person where everything I read and he's complaining about money and then he lights money on fire for something like The Dead Don't Die. And even, and this, I I was saving this for us recording. So I watched Only Lovers Left Alive. I texted you right after I had seen it. This was like a couple months ago and I had a shit-eating grin on my face. I was ready to buy the soundtrack. I was all of a sudden on board with why everyone thinks Tom Hiddleston's so fucking hot. And then, Alex. Oh, no. I rewatched it this week. Yeah. And I did not care for it nearly as much. Interesting. I think when the music and the mood and the fashion and the beauty wash over you the first time, you're like, wow. But then the second time watching it, completely sober with a notebook, the way I do faculty of horror, ready to pick out themes, ready to pick out quotes, ready to pick out what grabs me about this film. I saw the seams and I didn't like them. The referentiality that I found so charming the first time I watched it felt to me juvenile and in place of substance here and there. There's still plenty to talk about with this movie, but like I I feel like insofar as I'd recommend this movie to anyone, just see it once. Yeah, I think it's definitely a film that works the first time you see it because of, again, because of the aesthetics, because of the quality of the actors, because of all of these, you know, much more surface level things. But then like, I've seen this film a few times and I went in watching it knowing I was like, oh, Adam and Eve are kind of dicks. (laughs) Like they're pretentious dicks. (laughs) Ava says as much. And I'm like, I'm fucking on Ava's side here. Um, You know, and and again, like the names, we'll talk about the names, but it's like the names from Adam and Eve to like a Dr. Watson, a Daisy Buchanan. I'm like, you know, it's not subtle. And like, I understand Adam as a character. I want to talk about Adam as a character and his, his whole deal, his whole tortured musician, these fucking zombies. God, I, I don't want to be famous. I I just want to make music and like nothing's good anymore and nothing. It just reeks of this really smarmy, like the ugliest side of a hipster, the ugliest side of what I think Jarmouche is probably like. Yeah. And I have written down here, this is to me a hipster love story. Yeah. It, like, and if we're talking about like the hunger is like dark wave, tragic, gothic. This is like late aughts, early teens. We're over it. We're better than everything else. Yes. You know, which leads so nicely into the novel of the same name mm. published in 1964 by Dave Wallace. I was surprised to learn that there, that I was like, this is based on a novel. Let's see. Now, Only Lovers Left Alive by Dave Wallace is a dystopian fiction story where all adults have committed suicide and teenagers just run wild. Uh, They're forming gangs. Some of them are trying to form government, but it's Lord of the Flies set in the city. And it is kind of noteworthy as literature that marked the growing youth movements of the time in the 60s, but it's also... If you read reviews, they're just kind of like, it's, it's, it's thin. It's, you know, it's, yes, teenagers, the kids aren't all right. Got it. Yeah. And Jarmouche 
considers himself a very political filmmaker, I think in the same way as this book considers itself a very political book. Mm. Uh, he considers him like very counterculture. He's a Hollywood outlaw. And I think it, it's in tribute to that book. Right. Because it's such an evocative title, Only Lovers Left Alive. Right. But it has nothing to do with anything. And it certainly has nothing to do with this book other than the dick swinging. And also that like, I fucking know this obscure book and you don't fucking know about yeah. it. Look it up. Yeah. Zombie. One thing I do want to say that I think is notable about Only Lovers Left Alive, the film, because mm-hmm. um, I do still have a lot of fondness for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it's, you know, quite different in many ways. And one of the things I really like about it is that it is a chapter or a season of a love story. Just dropped in. It, you were just dropped in. These, like, Adam and Eve are absolutely crazy about each other. We don't know why they're on opposite ends of the earth. We don't know how that happened. Yeah. But the second second one of them needs something it's like they rejoin yeah they get together so i like that you know it's not a love story about them getting together it's not a love story about them breaking up yeah. as most love stories are mm-hmm. it is just like this is a long fucking term relationship no one's dying no one's you know aging rapidly they're just we're going through something and they found each other again yeah. and they've reconnected and they're gonna go on another adventure yeah and that felt so fresh to see. Yeah. Because that's like, even even nowadays, there's still kind of a movement toward normalizing different households, different oh God, marriages, yeah. different uh, different modes of not even necessarily monogamy. We don't know if they're monogamous. Yeah. They're on other ends well, of the- Well, because he says at the end, I want the girl. Oh. Yeah, but just to drink, maybe. We yeah. Don't. But they're talking anyway. about turning them. Anyway. That ambiguity is rare and super delicious. Yeah. And progressive, I dare say. And, like, they're adults. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not Bella and Edward. It's not, you know... Um, it was nice to see them not kind of grapple with, I'm a vampire, yeah. what now? Like, they're in it. They've been living it. They know what they're doing. They've set themselves up to be quite comfortable. Yeah. Like, aspirationally comfortable. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, listen, as much as we can bitch about certain things, the aesthetic is, like, my Pinterest mood board. Yeah. Well, like the characters are, I mean, Adam's got a shit attitude, Uh, (laughs) but Eve is a queen. Listen, can I tell you one of the things that I really laughed quite a lot at this watch um, was when Eve is packing and she just packs books. And I was like, you manic pixie dream vampire. Uh, Like, what are we doing? And she's like touching them. I was like, shut up. How many languages you read? Um, and I and I was literally like, that's so pretentious, blah, blah, blah. And then I couldn't help but think, Andrea, do you remember earlier this year when we went to New York? Yeah. And I like bought six books. It was six talked down from 10. Yeah. 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 And I like brought a couple books to read and I was like, oh, you dislike in others what you dislike in yourself. <laughs> so <laughs> my issues with the books that will eventually crush and probably kill me when one of my Ikea bookshelves gives way is, you know, very, very present in my everyday life. All right. Okay. Well, that's fair. But also that's just bad packing. Why are you packing infinite jest? I have nothing to say to that. Great. I just don't think you should pack that book. Don't pack that book, guys. I'm with her. And like the camera fucking lingered. I was just like, shut up, Jarmouche. I loved the music. And uh, we should mention that Jarmouche is one third of Squirrel that did uh, most of the music for it. I loved it. 
It was great. It reminded me a lot of like um, another film we both loved that came out a couple years ago, Hellbender. Yeah. Because the music the characters create is so central to both Hellbender and Only Lovers Left Alive. So the music needs to be fucking good if you're going to tell me this is good or it's fun or it's engaging or you want me to like these characters. Or it's successful. Yeah. (laughs) In the case of Adam. You know what? In 2013, fuck yeah, this would have been huge. Yeah. And the music also kind of reminded me of the um, album that Heidi gets in uh, Lords of Salem. Oh, yeah. Okay. Has that kind of like dirge kind of quality to it that I, I like anyway. Yeah. It's like old and new at the same time. Yeah. It, it's uh, it definitely like it fit the brief. Yes. For who Adam's character is and what he would make. I agree. So. You guys probably picked up on the fact that they're called Adam and Eve. And that might have Oh my God, like in the Bible. The what? The B-I-B-L-E. Oh no, I, I was thinking of those like Adam and Steve signs that I sometimes see oh, idiots yeah. carrying on the street. Yeah, no, Andrea, it's the book that every time you touch it explodes. Oh. Yeah. It is impossible to hear those names and not have the association with not only the Bible, but like it's kind of... I don't know. I'm not going to say controversial, but it is the Bible's genesis. It is the origin story of humanity. And if you are a very devout Christian and you take that very literally, and as a result, you reject (laughs) the Big Bang Theory and dinosaurs and all the rest of that. Anyway, it is a story about a man who was created by God and he was like, "Mm, I'm kind of bored and kind of horny. And God took his rib and made a woman out of it because ribs. And um, then she convinced Adam to eat from the forbidden fruit that gives them knowledge. And they're cast out of paradise in a nutshell. Yeah. And there's a snake on the tree of knowledge that tempts Eve. And so tempts she, Eve, but it's still her fault because it's, yeah, yeah, she's yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, she causes the downfall of man. And I always love to point out when we talk about like Adam and Eve is that um, everyone likes to forget Lilith, mm. Adam's first girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Who's kind of badass. She was like, go fuck yourself, Adam. Well, there's no Lilith in this movie. No. Any hoozle. So you might be watching this movie and being like, Adam and Eve, are these like, Are these the original two vampires? Are these going to be like the two vampires that spawn everything else? Are these going to be blah, blah, blah? Not exactly. They do share a thematic connection with their namesakes. Mm -hmm. Essentially, as we move through this film, and this film likes to, you know, take its time. It's paced in a really interesting way. Uh, But we have Adam and Eve, especially when they reunite in Adam's home in Detroit. It's their paradise. It is this kind of beautiful, rambling, chaotic mansion almost it is sexy it is very much them they are surrounded by beautiful objects that they adore and they prize and the more that they kind of in especially in adam's case create the more output he has the more content he produces (laughs) um the chaotic world around them begins to encroach ava who is eve's sister enters into the scene after everyone's been dreaming and you know worrying about her and just her presence because she's very chaotic she comes in she upends everything you've got ian who uh, is you know essentially in this case adam's familiar but Mm -hmm. in a different way which we'll talk about and you know those people within 
in their lives begin to upset the status quo that um, especially Adam, it seems, has fought so hard to create because he wants to make art. It's, you know, going to get out there, but he wants this mystique. He doesn't want the attention. Mm-hmm. So, so he have- says, he says it in that bratty way that I'm like, you'd be mad if you didn't have the attention and you're mad that you have it too. Yeah. So there we have like their paradise and then the fall of their paradise where they, in the end, have to flee from it and, uh, you know, restart a life in a very uncertain place in Tangier, which, um, you know, Eve had been in before, Christopher Marlowe was there, Kit, uh, he passes away so they don't have the access to blood that they once do, so they are cast out. They are on their own, and they're gonna have to figure it the fuck out, and in doing so, in the final moments of the film, they go from these kind of austere vampires who are like, we see blood, like, there are two scenes throughout the film where um, Eve and Adam separate see like a cut and are kind of like and you feel that but they don't give in Mm -hmm. they're very separate they are not Ava they are Adam and Eve Um, but then in the end they give in to their baser instincts which kind of to me marks the fall of man yeah or fall of vampires in this case the end of that chapter and the start yeah, of something the start new. of something new or maybe even a return to their more baser instincts that's right so like Adam's pad Mm-hmm. Set in Detroit, spe- uh, very specifically, very specifically in Detroit, uh, a place that obviously used to thrive and is now essentially rotting. You know, Detroit is a really interesting city for so many reasons. Um, it was, you know, booming, especially with car manufacturing. Industry, when, yeah, yeah. When the in, when that industry kind of collapsed in the states, it caused a huge amount of unemployment, and that has ripple out effects um, across many different areas of people's lives and. And so that city became very depressed in many ways. Um, the economic downturn of 2008 and the economic crash didn't fucking help at all. Um, in fact, more layoffs, more of plant closures, more factories closed. We lost a lot of you know jobs throughout the period, and um, Detroit really suffered from this, that were like the steady middle-class jobs that mm-hmm. people thought... I will get this. I will work this fucking production line every day of my life. And it will not be the thing I'm passionate about, but it will yield all the things that I need to live the rest of my life. And then, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but then you have the thing of the gentrification. Mm. of Detroit. And, you know, then, you know, artists start to move there when they can't live or can afford to live in a city like New York, then they will um, begin to move over to places like Detroit and then other people will follow them. And then there is, again, we'll talk about this more in just a little bit, but there is a huge kind of economic boom that can follow this, but that also actually drives out the uh, residents of places like this. Yeah. And so here he's got this beautiful space, this big, beautiful space that, you know, he's furnished. And then there's so much sightseeing, right? Like when he takes Eve to like go out and there's a lot of talk about what a shame. Look at this crumbling thing. It's ruined now. What a shame. Mo, 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 because that's Adam's style. But yeah, the paradise is so contained and when it's broken and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, because it's just like when they tour around Detroit, it's, you know, uh, that used to be a thing. That used to be something meaningful, um, even when they stop at Jack White's house. Yeah, yeah. It's Jack White's house. Oh, I love Jack White. That's where he grew up. Oh, little Jack White. Nice. Which is like so like, oh my God, just a fucking hipster dude explaining Jack White to me is like 
triggering. Um, <laughs> to her credit, like Eve is just like, look, that's beautiful. Yeah. That is beautiful even in its decay. And the other important thing Eve says kind of throughout that movement of the film is that Detroit will rise again. Yeah. Because of the waterways. Because of the waters, because the water wars will start. Well, women know about nature. And, you know, she probably saw Waterworld by Kevin Costner. (laughs) Um, But no, no, and that's true. Like, that is going to be a thing. People are going to start fighting over water. And it's, you know, going to be important to be close to sources of water. I'll be long dead. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You'll be in a coffin in my attic. That can be Eve's problem. Yeah. (laughs) So in the end, with Paradise Lost, they have the choice to either perish or to reconnect with the world the old-fashioned way. And I kind of liked, this isn't the first time that I've seen vampires really removed from the hunting process. Mm. Um, Like, we talked about that at length with Twilight several years ago, where it's like, oh, you know, we're kind of like vampire vegetarians. We're sort of like that, where we don't have to hunt. And yeah, those setups are so, so important. We think of vampires as these like immortal, super powerful beings, but they're also very desperate and their position is very precarious. And I find it such an interesting tension, like in the lore of vampires, when you've got the aspects of control. Like, again, we always think of, you know, uh, vampires as more aristocratic. Mm-hmm. And so them having to be in control, having sourced, you know, places to get blood, whatever they need to feed. It's done in a very um, premeditated kind of way, even in the hunger. Like, this is our fucking grift. We go to the club, we find two people, and we kill them, and Mm -hmm. we, you know, burn them. You know, they have a set operational mode for this. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, when they are kind of pushed to the end, they do have to give in to that, you know, innate instinct that they are clearly suppressing. Yeah. But they choose to do it. And I think in light of Adam's grumpy Gusness. And almost dying or almost killing himself. Yeah, that's right. She kind of brings him back around to it. And yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. It's fine. Like Adam requests a wooden bullet Mm -hmm. early on in the film. And he seems very like intent on ending his life. And then when Eve comes back into the picture, when she begins to sense that something is amiss with Adam and she jumps on the plane and is like, I'm gonna come fix this Mm -hmm. it's very much a like it's it's such a tricky and hard topic when you talk about suicide depression all of that and i felt like the film kind of glosses over so much of it yeah and then it kind of gets into like a funny caper for a little bit and it was like ah, our fucking crazy sister showed up and you're like it's hard to say that eve really saves adam when she is kind of the agent of kale it's her sister but it's not her but she is constantly making it excuses and we have to have her in. She's my sister. Uh, sister in what way, by what nature, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. But um, but yeah, and then he just kind of follows her around. Yeah. I mean, I'd follow Tilda Swinton around. Sure. I, I think I was just, I was really trying to puzzle. Okay. Toward the end of the film, he sees that beautiful Lebanese singer. Yeah. And he's really moved by it. It's impossible not to be moved by that piece. It's incredible. Does that give him a will to live? Like that there is still art, that there are still artists creating, that, you know, uh, not everything has been done, that has been done before. I think that's another thing that the film kind of just, we just go with it. It just sidesteps. It like will introduce an idea and not see it through in a way. It's like they make a kind of offhand, slightly witty remark about it. And then they like trundle off to the next scene. Yeah, it's not the point. 
Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the character of Ian, who we have said is Adam's familiar. Now, familiars in, you know, the early modern period, they were originally depicted as supernatural creatures that helped witches perform witchcraft. Um, You're thinking cats, small animals, things like that. However, then when we get into vampiric folklore and mythology, we have the character of Renfield in Dracula. And, you know, Renfield has been in almost every iteration of Dracula from Nosferatu to having his own fucking movie this year. And the figure of the familiar for vampires will perform daily tasks, will help them mitigate the outside world will do a variety of different essentially chores and the idea is and we get this a lot from Renfield the the original character is that his desire is to be turned Mm -hmm. so I'm going to do all this labor and then you will turn me into a vampire and that's actually a huge part of the uh, tv series what we do in the shadows yes which is very delightful but Ian performs in a space completely outside of being a familiar because he doesn't have the knowledge that Adam is a vampire. He knows Adam's weird. He knows Mm -hmm. he's reclusive. Um, Ian doesn't seem to be the uh, sharpest tool in the shed. But Ian's desire is to facilitate the creation of Adam's music. There is not only the understanding that Adam's music is great and he should be able to do it and he should have the materials with which to do it, but... It is that proximity to talent. It is the like, oh, I kind of know what this is and I've got the inside track or like, why are these kids showing up outside of my house? Um, Like Ian is essentially a fixer in many ways. And I thought it was really interesting that it's not in 2013, you know, in the early uh, teens when this film comes out, it's not about access to eternal life. For familiar. That's not the power we're craving right now. We are craving access to influence, to creation, to content, all of those things. And that our immortality is less in the day-to-day life of being able to continually live, mm. but otherwise being a part of it. Like, I mean, how many people do you know who just name drop like motherfuckers? Oh, too many. Too many. Too, too many, many to name them. drop. Yeah. <laughs> but so I thought that was a really interesting switch in the power dynamic. Using a figure who is very familiar to vampire storytelling, but just changing the intent and the desire of power. Mm-hmm. To just kind of a fanboy, like adoring, yeah. an industry grunt. Uh, I couldn't help but think that when those kids showed up at his house, it's like maybe he was bragging a little bit totally. that I know that guy and it all goes bad. And like in the fact that he's the one that Adam asked for the wooden bullet. Yeah. Ian seems to kind of react with a like, huh? But then of course does it. Yeah. And that's an unusual item to procure. So he's a good familiar too. Yeah. And uh, And he's very sweet and endearing. Yeah. And then one of the final things I just want to circle back on and and just touch on a little bit more deeply is the idea of gentrification and vampiric privilege. Mm. Again, we've talked about the idea of vampires always being from the upper classes, being nobility. We get that from Dracula. We get that from like all kinds of um, like the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Like there is, you know, a level of like, if you have that much access to time and resources, then you can truly fuck around. Yeah. Uh, you're not having to till the fields every day. You can like consume the blood of others. But I really felt like, again, the setting of Detroit is so important to this film. And I remember some of the press when this film came out that it was like, here is a sexy vampire film with sexy indie or up and coming 
factors that holy shit takes place in Detroit, the last place you would ever think of for sexy vampires. You know, people were like, oh, that is so shocking. But during that period, and I, I we have a mutual friend who um, a few years ago went to Detroit and it was like it had just gentrified and there are art tours and craft breweries and you know it's still facing a lot of systemic issues but there is very much a you know time and a place where a certain class of people started to come in and then the economy started to build around them you know we see this um in our local area in like hamilton property in toronto is very very expensive to buy Mm-hmm. So when people were like, oh, we do have a little bit of money, I can go buy a house in Hamilton, which is about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Mm-hmm. This is what happened with like Brooklyn in New York City, um, the other boroughs kind of gentrifying in really different ways. And this is what was kind of happening in Detroit, especially after 2008 and the economic crash when a lot of homes were foreclosed on. So a lot of hipsters who were kind of the new middle class of millennials could swoop in and buy a house and fix it up if they needed to. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting article I stumbled upon um, from The Independent uh, called Why Hipsters Could Be Seen as Modern-Day Colonizers. Whoa! Um, yeah. Um, Melissa Tondwi Mayambo is not fucking around in this piece, so we will link it in the show notes. And she writes that often hipsters will appear as progressive, but they participate in systems for their betterment and the displacement of others. Oh. She writes, This is a quote, and uh, I've shortened it slightly. Gentrification can be romanticized by hipsters as living on the edge. As they move into the wild west of lower-income neighborhoods, hipsters often think of themselves as adventurers or pioneers who are striking into the urban jungle's unsettled frontier. Uh However, when you strike into the unsettled frontier, you don't often think of why that home was foreclosed upon, what family was kicked out of it. Um, Or if you do, you try to suppress those thoughts because it's really fucking depressing that a family or a person or a couple, whoever it is, lost their home. And and hey, you you just bought a house. And you got a fucking sweet deal on it. Like, it's kind of sick. And uh, so then I was looking on um, some Detroit local news and I found in the Detroit Metro Times uh, an article from this year, rising costs and gentrification force locals out of Detroit's downtown and midtown. And it is such a fucking heartbreaking article because it is about an apartment complex that is designed for older people. Mm. and they are downtown it is in a safer part of the city so they can move around they still have access and they are being forced out by developers who are uh, because they don't have to pay very much because a lot of it is subsidized but these leases have come up Mm -hmm. so now they're like well actually we want to make them um you know market rate condos yeah so they're going to kind of displace these people into other apartment buildings and you know they were fighting it out and A couple of the, and again, this article is really interesting. So we linked in the show notes. I encourage you to read it. There's a lot of stuff in it, but a few things I pulled out that um, Detroit is one of the poorest cities in the U.S., but has one of the fastest growing rental rates, vastly outpacing the rise in general salaries that was happening and hourly wages, and that approximately half of Detroit's residents are renters. Mm. So the way all of this is happening is that, you know, people are hungry and they are needing to feed, and they want to be out for themselves and their life rather than the people around them. Yeah. Well, the allegory between the bourgeoisie and the vampire was an old one. Good old Marx said that. Yeah. 
He really did. And, and so this is kind of yet again, another modernization of it because you've got Adam in this, again, this like rambling house that is in semi-disrepair. Like it looks fucking dusty, but it's a beautiful house full of beautiful things. And he's dropping money like crazy on these guitars and he's not going out to perform. He's not going out to share them. He is like, I want this for myself. Mm, okay. I am amassing what I want for I me. I was wondering where you were going to take this was like, is he part of this colonizer? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Fuck right. yeah. And like the second they get outside of that home, it's like they see the wires are like, have been like gnawed through yeah. and um, you know, that the mushrooms are growing at the wrong time of year. Yeah, like yeah. everything else outside of that home is starting to go wrong. Okay. And so like this real life, the real things that are happening that they can't protect themselves from are beginning to encroach and intrude on this life mm-hmm. that they have built for themselves. And then the other thing is, and this is where the needle didn't quite thread for me narratively, is that Adam's fucking depressed. Mm-hmm. He has all of this shit. Yeah. He is so talented. And that's fair. Like, depression takes all forms in yes. everyone. Um, but we still have at the end, like, he's kind of put out that he can only take a carry-on. Only take one guitar. And, like, Eve even says to him, I'll buy you more. Yeah. Lighten up. What a saint for putting up with him. <laughs> I found it hard to feel for him. Yeah. Bless his and, but again, it's like this is very much a mentality that a lot of people had and often still have. Yeah. Um, you know, you're out for yourself. It's, you know, a fucking hard time economically for almost everyone. And there's a lot of uncertainty. So it's like we, we get into these places where we want to advocate for ourselves rather than larger communities. Yeah. And I always felt like he doesn't want to share his wealth and his product and his everything else that he has it, it's like i i've dated many guys like that yeah it's, yeah, it's the hipster artists. life story yeah not just hipsters but like creatives who yeah. just like i just want to create i should be funded for that i should be able to do it on my own terms i should i should i should and then resentment that not everybody else is is, is playing ball yeah. in your arena that you've constructed for because yourself. we do need art we need artists to be funded and yeah. make money and, and have money yeah. and resource we need all of that but it's like it comes with it you've got to pay it off that's Jarmushi to me. Yeah. I've seen other, like, he'll be at Cannes complaining that he can't get funding. You're at motherfucking con. Well, as we wrap up this conversation about hipster vampires, opportunistic vampires, sexy vampires, rich vampires, bored vampires, mm. I wanted to dive a little bit into the subject of boredom. Because, Alex, I tell you this honestly, that I have not been bored in years. Yeah, I, um, so obviously this is our November episode and I remember saying to, I was deferring so much stuff because like our Octobers are always so packed this year more than ever. And uh, I remember saying to someone um, in October, I was like, I'm really looking forward to being bored. I couldn't be bored if I wanted to. And even if I have downtime, even if I have vacation time, I am never bored because there is always something that I want to do. Mm. Even if I'm too tired to do it, yeah. I don't experience As I cast my sentiment. eyes over to your craft table. Yeah. That is 
in perpetuity my boredom killer. <laughs> I have not been bored in perhaps a decade. And and so I was thinking about boredom and I was thinking about boredom with regard to, um, you know, sociological constructs of ennui and anomy and stuff like that. And like the difference between boredom and idleness, the difference between boredom and laziness. And I, I kind of wanted to parse all that out. And I found a fantastic article by Josefa Ross Velasco called The Contemporary Myths on Boredom. And um, Velasco talks about how boredom is largely understudied and not understood. However, she was able to pull together a list of myths and misconceptions about boredom. We study happiness, we study sadness, but we don't really conceptualize nothingness. And so it, it kind of starts with a history of philosophy on the subject, basically how, you know, the Romans who philosophized everything were just kind of like, if you're idle for too long and you don't have enough to do, you start to experience pain. And it is experienced on a level of discomfort. In the Middle Ages, idleness and sloth are sins, not because they lead to boredom, but because the state can't benefit from people being idle, but that's its own thing. A myth that Velasco identified was that the idea that boredom only takes place in free time mm. or the idea that boredom is the same thing as doing nothing, it's not. Boredom can occur regardless of how busy you are. It has to do with having desire. It has to do with having something that you want to do. That's something that is occupying your mind that aligns with your expectations. And I know it's weird and abstract and I have a big fat quote which is Velasco's condensing of like, here's a working definition of boredom. Boredom is a state of malaise that we suffer from when the environment in which we find ourselves immersed or the activity we try to engage in does not stimulate us in line with our initial expectations, resulting in the painful experience of meaninglessness. The person who is bored feels that their relationship with the present reality is damaged and they should do anything within their grasp to return to an optimum state of stimulation. And I thought relationship with the present reality is damaged. That really jumped out at me in terms of both my relationship to, you know, being hyperstimulated, being mm -hmm. always having something that I want to do or I need to do, or like I have this restlessness within me. But when we're thinking about these these vampires who are so bored yeah who are so stuck in eternity and what could they possibly want for when they are wealthy when they are beautiful when they have stacks and stacks of books to read or perhaps they're disparaging of the new books because that's new hipster bullshit nonsense adam i get it but the relationship with the present reality is damaged because they're eternal yeah. And, um, you know, these bored vampires live not only out of society, but outside of time. Yeah. And that is a really uncomfortable state. Because you know what they say about the present? What? It's a gift. Oh, I thought you were going to say there's no time like it. Or that. Or that. But when you have, I think that to your point, because that's really, really fucking interesting. But when you have forever, the present seems to matter less and less, I imagine. That's right. And yet with both of these movies, we're dealing with vampires who are eternal. In both cases, the movie plops us right into the middle of it such that we only have the present. And so we're like watching these vampires grapple with a moment they don't know what to do with. Yeah. Damn. Damn, right? Damn, I like that. Me too. I thought that was a fun note to end this episode on as we talk about, you know, the now. 
and forever and ever. And uh, hopefully we have not bored you, our dear listener, if you are still listening to this. And um, let's talk about next month, because next month, Andrea, it's your favorite time of year, the holidays. Hey, You look forward to it every year, and you get so excited about being so sad. Um, <laughs> so we decided to lean into that sadness this year. And for our December episode, we are going to be talking about Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So it's going to be real fucked up and really fucking sad, but also sexy. We'll make it sexy. We'll answer the eternal question of, did Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie actually have sex? Oh, I don't want to know the answer. I want to just live in my mind. You know what's great is I was mailing something the other day, so I went up to the little Canada Post location, and um, the the shop owner's so nice, and he's always like, stamps, do you need stamps? And I'm like, no, I'm good, I've got some. And he was like, we have new ones, and the new Canadian stamp is Donald Sutherland. Really? And all I could think about was that scene and... And you bought them. Well, because all of the stamps were of that scene and don't look now. Oh. No. (laughs) I hope to get a letter with that stamp. (laughs) Could you imagine, though, how fucking great would that be? Uh, Just a thrusting Sutherland buttock. It's a true Canadian heritage moment. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's a lovely, like, portrait of older Donald Sutherland on a fucking stamp. (laughs) So that's going to be our December episode to warm the cockles of your Donald Sutherland heart. As always, we are putting out stuff constantly on our Patreon, which you can join for just as little as $2 a month. Please join us there. We've got lots of fun stuff there. And of course, our merch is still on sale. Yes. Class of 2023, Feminist Drivel, um, artwork by Last Johnny on the left. I, I haven't qualified this scientifically, but I think it is our fastest and most selling merch we've ever done yeah yeah it is a banger and guys limited time at the end of the year we pull it it's gone it's not we don't have inventory in our basements we did that the first couple of years it It sucks they're still sitting in my basements i don't like that we are doing print to order so if you want them you need to get them before the end of the year we will link that in the show notes as well as to our patreon you can get t-shirts mugs notebooks stickers buttons pins magnets i think that's it there's a, yeah, there's stuff. There's stuff. You can find it. Um, but yeah, um, it goes to support the show if you're not on our Patreon, or you can do both. Be, be a fucking queen. Do both. <laughs> um, uh, vampires. Vampires would be both a Patreon member and a merch buyer. Ah, be a vampire. Be one of us, Michael. <laughs> and until it's time to box up your old podcast co-host and get a new one. Hey! Office hours are closed. <laughs>